Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Before this episode begins, I have some back page projects to tell you about. Let me begin with Pep's City, a new book by Luis Martin and Paul Balus, who have been embedded with Manchester City for much of the past three seasons. I've known Lou for years, most of my time in Spain. He's not only a fantastic storyteller, he has contacts that you would struggle to believe because in the modern era, journalists aren't supposed to get that close to football people. He does. In fact, he's close friends with Pep Guardiola and all his extended family. Indeed, Pep, along with some colleagues, wrote Pep's only, to date, autobiography just after he left Football Club Barcelona in 2001. Lou and Paul gradually earned total access to Manchester City and you'll see that reflected in the description of the structures, the idea, the atmosphere, the people, the anecdotes. I think along the road they both fell a little bit in love. It's a good page turner. It will bring you right inside the heart of this project telling you about Guardiola's emotions, ideas, when he's tired, when he's ebullient, who helps him, which players fall in and out of favour. It's everything you'd want from an inside story. Whether you're interested in City or separately in Pep Guardiola or any of his superstar players or how a huge operation like that looks from the inside, you'll find plenty in this book that you didn't know. Next up is Astroball, The New Way to Win It All by Ben Reiter. Even if you don't speak baseball, if you're interested in where any pro sport and especially elite football is heading in terms of recruitment, data and optimization, then you need to read this inside account of how the worst team in baseball were turned into serial winners thanks to a strategic revolution. It's Moneyball, the next chapter. And while I have, while I have your attention, are you, are you paying attention? Neil and Martin, who produce this show and whose voices you probably love hearing every now and again on the question and answer sessions, they've got another podcast called Between the Lines. It's interviews with sports writers who explain the stories behind a book or a piece of long form journalism. It's the medium I like most when you get somebody to explain how something works how it came together, how it was constructed, how it was planned. I love hearing things like that. It calms me. It interests me. And I guess that there's a thread of that running through what we try to do in the big interview in that when we get elite coaches or footballers sitting down with us, we want them to explain. 
We want them to tell the stories from inside out. Lift the lid, I think it's called. This is most certainly what um, this new podcast that Neil and Martin produce does successfully. It's interviews with sports writers who tell the stories behind a book or a piece of long-form journalism. A new season of this podcast is running right now. It features excellent writers like Oliver Kay of The Athletic, Andy Mitten, who interviewed Diego Maradona for 442. And the season will close with a documentary about a much-loved football book, The Miracle of Castel di Sangro. Subscribe now, please, to Between the Lines by Backpage and get the new season as it goes out, plus great archive interviews, including Henry Winter, Mike Calvin, and some fella who wrote a book about Spain's tournament treble. Just over uh, 20 years ago, this man that we're going to speak today was showing Leo Messi and Cristiano Ronaldo the way. He probably wouldn't thank me for the comparison, but Clive Allen, back in the day, playing 4-5-1 under David Pleat, with, um, I don't know, Richard Goff, Chris Waddle, Glenn Hoddle, Ozzy Ardiles, he was able to score nearly a half century of goals in a time when that was utterly outlandish. He comes from a brilliant football family, and one to whom I'm happy to be royally linked. Linked because in September 1975, I watched the man who would brutally scythe down Clive's cousin in an FA Cup final, throw his jersey at the Aberdeen manager and stomp out a Petodrian move to, yes, Willie Young will be in this interview. So will George Best. So will, well, if you're English, thank Clive for Harry Kane. Again, Clive wouldn't thank me, but would Harry Kane be the finisher? He is now, if it hadn't been for Clive coaching him at Spurs. We're going to talk about um, bereavement, not of a family member, but when your career goes away. We're going to talk about things that make our poor guest cry. We're going to talk about NFL and how a man in a wheelchair taught Clive to kick. This interview has a kick, and this interview is with a man I absolutely adore, a proper football man, great storyteller, and somebody to whom you will warn. Clive Allen on The Big Interview. Big Interview listeners, you know that occasionally we go back to um, times that not all of you saw, but I did, because there were players and eras and ideas then uh, which were truly special. And I think we're about to speak now to a, a truly special uh, football man, not just a truly special striker, somebody who had, um, before these Johnny-come-latelys, um, Messi and Ronaldo, started hitting 35 or 40 in a season. I'm with the man who had the trademark on that. Clive Allen, um, good morning. Good morning. We, we live in interesting times, don't we? We're, we're sitting in London right now, and we've already done a podcast off mic about events at, at one of your ex-clubs. Tottenham Hotspur. Football's really a strange business, a strange industry, isn't it? It never ceases to <laughs> surprise me. One of the one of the beauties of it, you never quite know what's going to happen next. I think that's uh, that's something. I was born into it, Graham. It's been a way of life for me. Um, I absolutely love it. And and yes, you're right. Um, incredible times at Spurs at the moment. Obviously, a club that I hold dear to my heart, and um, quite dramatic events over the last. 12 hours I would say Maurizio losing his job and uh, 
It could only be, couldn't it? Jose Mourinho back in the Premier League with Tottenham Hotspur Football Club. I would suggest that we're going to come back to these two men and Daniel Levy and the training ground and the stadium. But indulge me. I'm a real lover of London. And the London that you you and I are in right now is like a little country. Um, Not just in size, but in nationalities. the, The facade is glitzy and gleamy. But I remember, you know, being a kid growing up in the northeast of Scotland and watching, say, Minder and thinking, that's the that's the real London. A little bit wide, a little bit interesting, full of characters. I read Suggs's, Suggs is a big Chelsea fan, Suggs's autobiography about his London as he was growing up. You grew up in and around that, that London. You, you went to see your dad play at a ground that's probably the first London ground that captivated my imagination because on midweek sports night, when QPR were playing in Europe, which is just after your dad's... Um, spell there, Loftus Road and the lights on a Wednesday night playing in European football just looked extraordinary in the hoops. D- try and take us, if you can, to the Loftus Road you knew as a kid when, was it your granddad who took you to the games? Because that might be one of the first professional grounds that you started going to then. Tell me about getting there, the sights, the smells, the sound, old London. Old London, yeah. I was um, I was born in the east end of London, a true Cockney, um, in London Hospital. Um, I grew up just on the outskirts of London, but as I said, was born into a, a football family, a football way of life. It's what I knew. It's what I grew up listening to, my father, my c- uncles, my cousins. And then my grandfather, who took me to Queen's Park Rangers, six years of age, I remember um, that trip across London, the central line from east to west, off at White City, walking down, South Africa Road to Loftus Road, tight, compact ground with 10,000 in there, amazing atmosphere, sat right on the halfway line with my grandfather, watching my father play, playing in a third division team, Queen's Park Rangers in the third division, sprinkled with some seasoned professionals who then in 1967, as a third division team, went to the League Cup final the first League Cup final to be played at Wembley. And as a family, we went on the bus. Ironically, I had tonsillitis, fell asleep during the first half to wake up at half-time and find that they were losing. It's a disaster, isn't it? They were losing, Wait, to, you, West Brom, losing to West Bromwich yeah. Albion yeah. and then watched them come back to go into extra time and then to win win the League Cup. That's my first big memory of, of watching my father play, of football. Um, and my passion and love for the game has never died since. It's just just incredible. Well, I remember going to Pataudry for the first time, like to, the smell of old pipe tobacco, stuff like that. When I asked Darren Fletcher about this, he remembered being taken to Parkhead and the sound of the whirring of the engine of the burger vans. What were the sights and sounds then? Was it intimidating? Could you see fine? Everybody smoking, I suppose. Graham, I think that's where I was very lucky that I had an insight into the inner sanctum. I was in in the dressing rooms as a as a very young boy, smelling the liniment oils, the just the smell of the dressing rooms and the atmosphere there, the banter between, you know, senior players, young players, and I was this little kid who was a, who was around looking at it enjoying it and and just absolutely loving it and and in all honesty I had nothing else in my mind other than I was going to play football that was one you day. hooked absolutely hooked yeah it was a uh, it was something that um, I'll always remember 
And and obviously, growing up to be a a 14-year-old, a schoolboy international, um, and had clubs, had suitors who were were trying to sign me, Manchester City at the time, Tottenham Hotspur, I trained there as a schoolboy. But Queen's Park Rangers is where I started, where I felt at home. It was like a second home. I had no fears. I had the opportunity to go to a football club. Dave Sexton was in charge. A very, a very talented football team at that time. Stan Bowles, you know, players of amazing, amazing jam, ability. Jam on the anchors. Because people won't know about those two men you mentioned. Because Dave Sexton had really clear ideas about what the ball was for, how the game should be played. If you could encapsulate, start with him. What, what type of football did Dave Sexton stand for? He, he, he wanted a, a progressive, a quality passing football team, which on a, on a Loftus Rose pitch was not easy. But I, again, things that, that obviously come to mind immediately. One of my first training sessions with the first team, as a 16-year-old, having just left school, the pitches were waterlogged, training grounds, we couldn't train. So we went to a school, indoor gym, to train with Queen's Park Rangers. And there was I, a 16-year-old, just on the staff, still an apprentice. And we went in the players' cars to this school. We trained. And on the way back, as we left and got back in the cars, Dave Sexton presented us with Kasparov, the chess player's, form and formulations on attacking in chess beautiful you can imagine there's me as a 16 year old trying to read this the senior professionals as we left the car park of the school threw them out the window you don't need to read that and it was gone and fluttering out through the wind you know think things like that that perhaps in the modern day wouldn't happen but you know what an education what what an insight into into what being a professional footballer was all about. You see, Dave, Dave to, to, to my way of thinking, stood for um, elegant football, uh, quick, not rushed, but but using the ball in a fluent, clever way. I, I think the, the brand of football he wanted to teach and that we saw for a while in a very young Manchester United side where he was, he was very successful, obviously, would be, would be a la mode that would be in fashion right now. I think if you Absolutely. could just reinvent him, yeah. he'd fit into the modern game well. Yeah, because, because his ideals were about technical players who could pass the ball. It wasn't necessarily power and physicality. It, 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 was, it was the beautiful game. It, it was a, and, and he studied it and he was passionate about it and he loved football. And and that came through in the teams that he produced. Stambles, no. Stam was in those teams that I was watching sitting up late in Aberdeen when they played the European, in a team that probably still had Frank McClintock and possibly had Rodney Marsh. Jerry Francis. Certainly Jerry and probably Phil Parks and goals. And Dave, Dave Thomas, Clement. Don Given. I, they, they, were, they were the players that were in the first team when I arrived. They, the, they were the players that my father, obviously, and again, that insight that he gave me that those players that were 30-ish and weren't going to go on forever, you know, son, if you if you do what you, you, you intend to do, you work hard and your ability comes through, you might well get a chance in a year or 18 months because these players, yeah, they'll be 32, 33 and, and your opportunity could present itself. No, it was just, I was just focused on watching them obviously trying to improve myself at every opportunity. But um, it was a great breeding ground. Describe Stan and what he could and couldn't do. And As a professional, he was a magnificent example. I watched him, one of the best left foots I've ever seen. 
incredible balance and, and awareness. And he, in a way, when I got into the team, dropped back slightly deeper, but was that link player and never really given the credit, I don't think, for his passing ability. A wonderful passer of the ball. I had, you know, I played with some incredible midfield players who were great passers of the ball. Stan Bowles was up there He's amongst up, the he? best. Absolutely brilliant. He was balanced. He was poised. He wasn't the biggest, but technically wonderful touch of the ball and a, and a, an, an amazing passer of the ball. As, was he as much of a character as he looked? Because he played with a swagger, but it was never a swagger that wasn't deserved. D- did that carry on off the pitch as well? No, he was. He was, he was quiet. He, he was a he was a quiet person, but he you you knew he had great belief in his ability. He knew he knew what he could do on a football pitch. Played wonderfully so often for QPR. On surfaces as well, as you've described, which well, people wouldn't believe now. No, that's right. And, and, and honed his skill because of it. A wonderful touch. Brilliant, brilliant, skillful, skillful footballer. You talked about this fabulous legacy that you've got of not just being educated to the sights and the sounds. And, and did you say liniment? Did you say you had the word liniment in the yes, dressing room? Liniment. Sometimes we called it wintergreen. Yeah. Do you ever get butterflies in your stomach when you smell that? Because whenever Always. I, yeah, do you? Always, because it just brings back so many memories. You, you, you remember it, and that smell is what it's all about in, in preparing for games. Why did when, we use it? Tell me. I mean, I think I know, but it's so well, back I, in it my... Was, I, I think it, 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 it was... <laughs> It was how you warmed up in those days. That's you right. rubbed it on your legs and you were warm and you were ready to go and you, you, you were ready Cause five minutes later to go and run as fast as you could. No 45 minute warm up stretching. Because any stretching diagrams would have gone out the window with Gary Kasparov's chest, you know, kink and like prone three or whatever. Yeah, that's the way it was. And these boys and these players, and, and it was something that you remember vividly. But the one thing that hasn't changed everything around the football pitch. The white lines has gone beyond belief. But the one thing that's never changed mm. is when you cross that white line, it's 11 v 11, whether it's on the park, whether it's at Tottenham Hotspur's new incredible stadium, mm. whether it's at Wembley, new camp, also, wherever it is, it's 11 v 11. Mm. 11 guys playing 11 guys that, you know, you, you can't beat it. And it doesn't change. The same principles apply and they always will. With, with, with the changes that have taken place within the white lines so in other words the extraordinary uh, pitches now the, the trueness of passes once a season we played on pitches like that Wembley it, one, no once a season the first game of the season oh. and then after that they deteriorated and were never the same again tell people about the bounce or the, or the you know getting stuck in the mud well people say I bet you wish you could play now of course you do because in those days the uneven surfaces the the especially at Loftus Road at that time yeah. when I first started yeah. playing I yeah. got into this team as a 17 year old you had to have a good touch because if you didn't you lost the ball you had to almost read the bounce of the ball because mm. it wasn't going to come true not not true you had defenders who were kicking through the back of you could mm. challenge from behind so you had to be brave you, you you had to accept the ball under you know under physical provocation from big guys who were, who were going to stop you playing they were going to stop you and did you learn uh, did, I mean did you not dish it out, but like, did you, you go, to like, I'm yourself. here too? Yeah, absolutely. You what were your repertoire of tricks then? Well, there was arms, there was elbows, mm. there was tackles. Mm. You had to make sure you had to make sure you competed because if you didn't, you, you were, all quick, over you. You were quickly found out and, and you, you were quickly trodden on. Yeah. Simple as that. So when the ball doesn't run true, and let's say you're, you're having a little dribble or 
sometimes you even as well as you read the ball, the bounce is wrong, and you still have to be able to react to to get that little touch or the half volley or whatever it might be. How would that skill serve you today? I think I think well, I think well, absolutely. I had a, had a very interesting conversation with with a with a coach of mine just after five years after I finished playing, and even then it was as if the game was moving on. And I said to him, you know what, I'm not so sure that I'd have made it today. He said, no, no, don't ever think that. He said, because you have your time, and when you have your time, you're trying to be just that fraction above the rest Mm. to be the best you can. He said, and today, you'd be doing exactly the same. You'd have exactly the same attitude, exactly the same mentality, and you'll be working to be just above the rest. That's where I was beginning, because I'd like, I mean, it's all hypothetical, so okay, you know, we don't need to get too excited, but I think it interests people that, you know, the striker I saw when I watched you, with your brain and, and your knowledge of space and your timing of when you struck the ball. And then I'll, I'll ask you about this in more detail later, but the naturalness of, of your finishing, usually, almost always. In in an era where now the passing is, is different, it might not be better than Stan Bowles or Ozzy Ardiles or Chrissy Waddle. It might not be better. But the, the, the movement is truer. Players are, are, are fitter. I think the idea of... How to serve as a striker is, is Grandma, different. I'd have to stop you there. Go They're on. not fitter. They're not fitter. They're as fit as they are today for what they need to do. We was as fit as we were there in, I would say, tougher conditions. The Definitely. surfaces we played Definitely. on, the number of games we played, we didn't we didn't rest. We weren't rotated. We played, and we played, and and certainly a lot of players of, of my peer group who played at the time that I played, played when they weren't a hundred percent. You suffered it. Absolutely, yeah. but because we wanted to. We you were harder. One thing I'd say... Tougher, I would say. Mentally, yeah. physically, just in your entire robustness, that your generation, the generation before you, were a lot tougher than they are now. I, I believe so, yeah. I do think that, absolutely. My, my premise is that, you know, throughout your career, you, you scored a huge number of goals. There was one season where it was, for your times, utterly exceptional. My imagination says that where you play now, if we could do that and you know I think you'd be scoring barrel loads more I do think that um, the nature of the game now that I would have played longer and I, I perhaps would have had a longer period at, at the highest level like you say scoring goals freely as I did I always you know my records there over the course of my career the whole career uh, I'm proud of that. One in two was always yeah. was always the target. Was one in two? It, it, one it was actually. If you were hitting one in two, you were top top in the days I grew up watching. The days you were playing, yeah, and that I, was top. And I grew up listening to that. That was that was always the, you know the bottom line was always you score a goal every two games, you'll be there or thereabouts. You 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 won't be far away. And and again, that was that insight that my father had given me all that knowledge and experience that he he had had and he passed on small details are big surfaces tight corners are odd shapes flat rounded textured or tall whatever your next project there's a spray paint pattern that's just right because Rustoleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustoleum.
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When your skin feels nourished and glows, you radiate confidence. Osea makes giving your skin a glow up easy with their clean, clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This seaweed-powered duo features two of Osea's best sellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com, code GLOW. I'm a great one for atmosphere, and therefore I'm going to f- go fishing here because um, the nearest big club to where you grew up was West Ham. Eventually, you'll end up having, you know, some quite good times there. Um, but I know it's the first game where you asserted your independence and kind of went as a young lad on your own without any grandpa. Now, the Berlin Grand or Upton Park, call it what you want, was different from Loftus Road. It was different from most grounds. Different atmosphere again. Take me into that. What that felt like, um, because I think it was quite an intimidating place, and you'd have been going in there on your own with your mates about f- 13, 14 yeah, years old. We must go. We must go. Powers got the train from Upminster to uh, to Upton Park. Walked down. What did it look like or sound like as you're approaching? There was a buzz. There was that. There was that buzz and and the atmosphere, and you you wanted to get in there. You you wanted to be in the stadium. Wasn't quite sure where we were going to be, where how we were going to see the game, but we got in there, we watched it. I remember actually shimmying up a pole, and the coat I had on because you weren't supposed to shimmy up the pole. There was all grease on it, which then was on my coat, and I was petrified going home. The first time I'd been to football on my own, I hadn't, I wasn't with the family, I wasn't with dad, I, w- I was with my mates, and it was. What pole was this? Just as a matter of interest. Well, it was. I, I remember from where the main. Uh, tunnel was it was the far corner at, at, at Upton Park, so along from the chicken run in the corner from the chicken run, which um, obviously they did it for a reason. They didn't they didn't want supporters watching the game. But I was trying to get I was trying to get trying a vantage point. Yeah, wanted to see the game. <laughs> the, the chicken run. For those who don't understand the chicken run, as an away player, don't get too close. <laughs> don't don't if you're a winger and you're told to put your heels on the line, don't go that don't go that close. Because there is a chance that there'll be an arm come out and might just <laughs> grab your shirt or pull you back. Where's Colin? If Col- you Colin? if you were if you were playing, as you said, I played for West Ham. You could almost feel you'd get a pat on the back if if you were putting it in. If you were trying, yeah. and and West Ham supporters were very fair in that way. If they knew that you were yeah. you were putting it in, you'd get a pat on the back. You'd certainly get you know a, a well done and come on and keep going. And they they were with you so. Yeah, it was a special place. It was a special place. And I have to say, recently did all the London teams that I played for on the bus and by tube um, a few weeks back. And the final port of call was Upton Park. 
And again, just how the game's changed. Obviously, there's no longer Highbury, but the marble halls are still there. And I went into those, went into Queen's Park Rangers. And ironically, Queen's Park Rangers was the only club that I pitched up at, went to reception, and I said to the guy, do you mind if we just go onto the pitch for a photograph? He said, yeah, of course you can. Walked down the same tight little tunnel out onto the pitch at Loftus Road, had photographs done. The other stadium literally couldn't get anywhere near. The new Tottenham Stadium, Chelsea, Stamford Bridge, couldn't get in. No. But that last, and it was an evening walk down Green Street from Upton Park Station, and it wasn't there. The the stadium's not there. There's no memento of the stadium. It was three blocks of flats. And I I have to say, I was sad. It It was sad because it was... And it, it was like, this This is what's happened. I don't know why I'm a soppy romantic about things like this. And I am, I am. It just, but it really touches me. And, and you know, in previous podcasts, we talked to Charlie Nick about about Highbury. And then coming out of the tube, a couple of streets, turn around and there it is. And the North Bank, the South Bank, the clock, the, the marble halls. My first visit to Upton Park as well. You certainly, when you go and savour it, let alone bloom and play there and be a hero for them, you feel you're woven into something that's really important in our island culture, not just football culture. Central places of worship dating back to, you know, maybe the Great Depression or, or when you get extraordinary crowds with everybody wearing, you know, jackets and ties and flat caps, and Absolutely. it's been there all that time. You're woven into that. Even being a spectator or a journalist there gives you an injection of football into your veins and now it's just gone that that feels wrong to me on the flip side of that I would say that that there's obviously many new stadiums being built uh, which I think look the same they're bowls there isn't that feeling there isn't I don't think there's that uniqueness about them until and I have to say to Daniel Levy and the directors and and, and what they've delivered at Tottenham Hotspur that spirit is there in the new stadium. The pitch has slid a good 100 yards down. The new stadium has engulfed what was left from White Hart Lane. So on one side, yeah, the, the uniqueness of lots of the old stadiums have gone in, in what, has been, what has now been built for a lot of clubs. But I, I do believe that Spurs have got it right in terms of what they've delivered um, at the new Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. It's a really good way to describe it. And you've put me... I agree with you. And I know it's not bias, it's the truth. They've done something extraordinary. You've, you've reminded me, I should say to you and to listeners too, that San Mames, where Athletic Bilbao, one of the oldest clubs in Spain, um, one of the three that have never been relegated with Barcelona and Real Madrid, have done an, a similar job in building on the same site. It's a beautiful stadium. The one that they lost, San Mames, was, was fabulous but old. They kept the stadium site. It, it looms over the city, down onto the river. There's nothing but bars and restaurants on the way up to the place. It's also extraordinary. But we'll come back to the new White Hart Lane in a minute. For anybody who's not sure, we're talking with a goal-scoring legend. And Clive um, has a very, very good autobiography um, published now. It's a brilliant present for Christmas. It's, real, it's worth reading, too. You'll enjoy, if, well, if you enjoy this, you'll definitely enjoy the book called up front covers your life covers your football there's there's you know ups and downs in it um as is natural in a in a life story but meantime we're able to be here because our sponsors support us and help us so i'm going to ask you 
a question from Bet365. These are the questions they've sent in for us. One of them, I haven't read this before. One of them features, I'm going to be honest, a man I really don't like, who phoned me up and abused me in my house. You probably already know who it is. <laughs> so Bet365 has sent in this question. I'll put on their voice. What was it like being at Chelsea in the early 90s with Ken Bates as chairman? Uh, quite extraordinary. I've never uh, worked for a chairman like Ken Bates. Um, but I have to say that he loved his club. He certainly loved his players. And it was a, it, I would say it was a very difficult time at Chelsea at that time. Financially, they were, they, they, well, near enough went under. Because of a stadium, or because, partly because of a st- rebuilding a stadium. Absolutely, and, and the implications that that had on the football club, on the team in particular. And probably, I was actually one of the reasons why Ken was able to secure the football club when uh, myself, Jason Cundy and Kevin Wilson were sold on deadline day. And it was rumoured at the time that that just about secured the bank's foreclosing on on Ken and Chelsea Football Club. Um, I enjoyed my time there. Again, there was some history because my father had begun his career at Chelsea. Um, I felt very at home coming back from Manchester. I was at Manchester City and come to Chelsea. Um, Really enjoyed playing with Kerry Dixon, some some good players in that team. There There was an actor by the... Uh, by the name of Vinnie Jones, who played, but it was uh, it was it, it was it was good fun. It was good fun, and I I scored goals there. I enjoyed playing. I played at Stamford Bridge for Chelsea, and I played at Stamford Bridge for London Monarchs. Would you believe? So we're it was, definitely going to come to that. It was uh, it was a good time. I did enjoy my time there. All of this um, you can read much much more about in in Clive's autobiography up front. Naturally, I, I hinted at this. Earlier, there, there, there are sad events, and one of them includes me. I'm sitting at Pataudry, home of football in Aberdeen, the, the greatest club the world's ever seen, in early September 1975. And Jimmy Bonthron, the manager, substitutes our centre-half. And this big lump of, I don't know, volcanic rock with a ginger crop of hair on top, Willie Young takes his shirt off, wanders across to Jimmy Bronson, who noticeably shrinks, throws his jersey and stomps off down the tunnel. And within three days, he's, he's signed for um, Spurs. And he'll, he'll move across London like you did. He'll, he'll move to, to, to Arsenal. Willie Young will go on and play a, a big role in the sort of tapestry of the life of your football family, right? That's right. Yes, he's I mean, I remember did. watching Willie that day. Take us to why that why Willie is important to you and your family, where you were, relive the day. So you're talking about 1980 Cup final. That's right. My cousin Paul, who was the youngest player at the time in the FA Cup final for West Ham against Arsenal. And there was that big centre-half with a young plane. Huge, intimidating bloke. Well, he, he, he was one of the fiercest, one of the strongest, one of the toughest. And there, there I am at home having just bought a VCR recorder, and for the younger listeners, they won't know, they wouldn't have a clue what that was, on the Friday afternoon, so that I could record the whole FA Cup day. And on it's the a big Saturday. hefty old box, yeah, isn't it? bought it in Tottenham Court Road, took it home on the train, absolutely... Kosher th- goods, it's not like... Oh, yeah, no. Not knock off. No, it's, no, it was, no, full, full no, thing. All the electrical goods in Tottenham Court Road, that was the place to buy it. Hitachi VCR it was, I'll never forget it. Practice with... Practice with it all Friday evening to make sure that I could record. Quite worried, no? A pack of six 
four-hour tape, so there was no way I was going to run out of the, <laughs> of the cassette that goes in it to tape it and and recorded from the very first moment. And as you know, it, it was a, it was cup, a day. Fi- cup final was a day. Yeah. It, was a, it was a day from 8 a.m. when it started right the way through to whoever won the FA Cup and the interviews after. It was coverage full all day long. And um, Cousin Ball was playing a, a wonderful day for West Ham. Sir Trevor Brookin, who obviously I've, I've come to know very, very well, a neighbour of mine until just recently scored the winning header, which again was quite something. West Ham were, were underdogs on the day. The story that I have to tell is squeaky as he was known because he had such a high-pitched voice. My 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 17-year-old cousin went clean through. West Ham 1-0 up. He's one-on-one with a goalkeeper as his legs are unerringly just swept from under him by Willie Young. He just takes Paul out. And in all honesty, Graham, to this day, and I actually spoke to Paul this morning, he has always said it was the best thing that could have ever happened to him. And I always say, you've got to be joking. (laughs) You're the youngest ever player in FA Cup final. You're going one-on-one with a goalkeeper to score. He said, my legs were like jelly. He said, I'm thinking I am going to embarrass myself in front of the world because obviously the FA Cup was going global. He said, I was never going to score. He, he, he still says it today. Wow. And he says, Willie takes my legs from me. He said, he got me off the hook. <laughs> <laughs> and he'll be remembered Only for Only in it. football could somebody say that. Because yeah. at the time, if they were still hanging... He was. They'd have strung Willie up and, and they'd taken him to the gallows. The yeah. judge would have put him in the black. He was a national villain. I remember the outrage yeah. on the BBC yeah. about because yeah. you weren't even allowed to call it professional foul because this was unprofessional, terrible. <laughs> he really was a national villain. Absolutely, he was, yeah. You eventually had the sense of adventure to take yourself abroad and. It's it's an it's a it's just an unhappy chapter. But you said that you said to me, I've gone to live abroad out of my passion for football, not a passion for the sun or paella, but because I wanted to experience a different football culture, and it's been really enriching and nourishing. You went to French football. Why? Not just the contractual situation, but what was it in you? Because I don't think any of the rest of your family felt that way or did that, did they? I can't remember. Um, well, actually, yes. Um, Martin's father, Dennis, my, my dad's younger brother, played in Belgium uh, towards the end of his career. So, um, yeah, we had we had okay. ventured, ventured a field. Again, as you say, contractually, I was going out after a four-year deal at Tottenham. I was going to be 28. The opportunity, if it was going to come about, was going to be at that time. There was some speculation, clubbing, Clubs in Germany, um, Italy, and Bordeaux in France. They made contact with Spurs. A deal was done before I actually become, and it wasn't a free agent as we know now, but before my contract ran out at Tottenham, um, they agreed a deal. I agreed a deal. And so a month before the season ended, I knew that um, the following season I was going to be playing in French football, which was something very new, something very different. And it wasn't just from the from the football angle as well, just the, the way of life, the language. The whole thing was something to this day that we, my wife and I have always said, we didn't want to be sitting here today saying, I wonder what that would have Brilliant been like. Attitude. Brilliant It was bittersweet, as you, as you rightly say. It was, a, it was a great experience. It was, um, there was a cultural shock. There was, there, were, there was lots of things that happened um, and lots of things to, to read in, in the book about it. But it's something I'll, I'll never never regret. I'm Draw glad little, we did it. A little snapshot of 
maybe two or three things that people wouldn't know that were so different between your life in London football and Bordeaux where you went to? What, what would be the things that really stand out that would surprise people? The, the way football was played was a massive massive um, learning curve for me at 28 uh, when I was uh, you know to the, towards the I say the latter end of my career or, or the the cultural shock in terms of the way that even then the club completely completely run your life I was at their beck and call if they said mm. you were at the training camp you were at the training camp if you were staying away you were staying away days off very rarely happened it was just a, a, a completely different experience in that respect um, and then I had an education in red wine, so that was that was something that's held me in we, good we, stead. We did chat about that off mic, and it's clear that you know an awful lot more than me. But but also, let's repeat the phrase that the I'm not sure if it was the president or one of his henchmen that that gave to you, because I think a lot of people who might not know a lot about red wine will benefit from your counsel that they gave to you. Well, the day I signed, president invited us for dinner to celebrate me signing for for Bordeaux. And as his customary, I suppose, he said, you're, Clive, you're our new player, you're the guest, you must select the wine. Now, bearing in mind, we're in red wine country, the best red wine in the world, as they obviously tell everybody. Again, just being so naive, I said, well, I actually like Chablis, which meant the president standing up, crying. Mon Dieu! Oh, Mon Dieu! God. He said, we will have to educate you. And I just said, of course, Mr. President, please do. That's why I'm here. But he, he told you how you should treat wine, which is, never mind the denominacion or the price, just do, do you enjoy it? Absolutely. He, he said the golden rule is, he said, it's what you like, what your taste buds tell you are a good wine. It doesn't, it's irrespective of the price. And um, it, it's something that, uh, yeah, it's something that certainly that, that stood with me ever since and I just think it, it, it's correct. We've got lovely, lovely listeners, socios we call them. They're like, um, they're like our supporters. So Daryl Garrity, your question has been asked and answered by Bet365. Um, Finley, we're coming on to yours. Um, Rechman, we're coming on to yours. But Gustavo Bagatini, I've not spoken to. Gustavo, hello. Thanks for being there. So Gustavo says, as a Brazilian... Fortunately, I'm just too young to remember it. But what was it like to make your England debut by beating Brazil, still with many from the 1982 squad that enchanted the world at the Maracanã? Well, the story I tell, and to this day I still ask the same question, everybody remembers my England debut. But? <laughs> but no one does until I give one clue, and I have to say one name, mm. and that is John Barnes. Johnny Barnes. And as soon as I say it, everybody gets it. Because that magical moment in 84, when John Barnes weaves down the American R, scores one of the most unbelievable goals scored by an England player, that was my debut. And everyone goes, really? <laughs> and there I was. I was sitting on the bench. I came on for Tony Woodcock to win my first England cap. And I go on to say that actually at 2-0, John Barnes had scored, Mark Haightley had scored, Brian Robson, England captain, goes clean through, I haven't touched the ball. I'm on the field, I haven't touched the ball. There I am at full speed alongside him and the England captain fires the ball into the side netting where if he squares it to me, which he should have done, my first touch should have been, and it is, football's all ifs and buts. If he squares it to me, my first touch would have been a goal against Brazil in the American R. 
Fletcher and everybody Mill. says to me, well, what did you say to him? What did, you must have had a go at him. <laughs> and all you can say is, bad luck, Skip. Unlucky, Skip. <laughs> and that, that was my, my debut. I'll never forget. The American R was, was crumbling. Yeah. It was an old yeah. stadium. Obviously, <laughs> since has been re, you know, rejuvenated. Was that a big old ball then? Big, big, big round old open kind of 70,000 in there, but it seemed like it was, it was sparse because it wasn't full. <sighs> And we went back down into what were dungeons. The dressing room was were dungeons underneath for uh, Bobby Robson to deliver one of his, you know, meteoric speeches about how what a result it was, how things in England were going to be. Everyone was going to be smiling tomorrow because you've uh, you've achieved something that no England team had done. They'd no. never won in Brazil, so to be part of that was something special. Bobby was a, an interesting man. That, because he didn't always remember your name when he was speaking to you. I know this from first-hand experience. And he, he, would, he probably never said this to you, but he always said to me, well, I, I don't have a lot of time. I can't." I, and then an hour later, two hours later, you're still not only talking about having the time of your life. Different kind. I mean, he didn't give you enough caps. All right, let's get that out in the open. He should have capped you more. But a, a quite, a, I think, an idiosyncratic, eccentric man, but, again, oozing football. Oh, so passionate about the game of football, yeah. And in that second game, the, the next game that followed in Uruguay, he named the team the night before, and Les Allen and Tony Haitley were the front two. <laughs> and Mark and I sat there with the rest of the lads, you can imagine. <laughs> Absolutely. Did you get a bit of a dig in? Just a bit. And they're looking around. Who's Les Allen and Tony Haitley? And there's me and Mark sitting there looking at one another as you say, it looks like your dad's playing and so my Just to be clear, is. Les won the double with Spurs. I think Tony probably started with, I think, Coventry. I'm not, I'm not 100% sure about Tony. Yeah, Remember, he was, he was also centre-forward. Like, like centre-forward, like yeah, Mark, yeah. yeah, yeah. But, but Bobby, Bobby named those two in the, in the 84 international against Uruguay. I, I wasn't there at the time, but he's fa- because I've seen him in action, he's famous for coming down in an England away trip and approaching his captain with Bobby saying to Brian Robson, Morning, Bobby. And Brian going, no, no. Boss, you're Bobby. I'm Brian, and I really believe it happened because, and it was it was just like I think Bobby had other things in his mind, other things going on, and names weren't that important. And I liked, I have to say, I liked that. I was a one, he was a wonderful man, and he he actually tried to get me to sign for Ipswich Town as a as a fourteen year old many many years before, and he always reminded me. Even that first trip with England, he reminded me. You, son, should have signed for us when you was 14 years of age. You'd have been a good player then. And he just put me in the England squad. But that was Bobby. Thank you for listening to The Big Interview. It's produced by me, which sounds egotistical, but it's also true. Graham Hunter and Backpage. Our music is by Beer Jacket, who else? Editing by Charlie McGarry. Thank you to our hosts at Acast and our loyal sponsors at Bet365. We're also supported by our socios. Find out how to become a socio, how to support us at patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter. Here endeth the lesson. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. 
Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.